Amen. Thank you so much. Beautiful. This has been a wonderful worship experience for me today. Thank you, Pastor Gatra, for the introduction and the kind words. Uh, a memorable student. In a very good way, in a very good way. Although, as I said in the first service, my wife would have been wondering, who is that guy in the picture? Because that's quite some time ago. <laughs> Dr. Vin Cross, Pastor Steve, Linda, Mike, Starla, and Laya, the priest of God who shepherd this community as co-laborers with Dr. Vin Cross, thank you so much for hosting me and my wife so well, and for the work that you do to hold together this community of disciples of Jesus. I'm not gonna say much about black history. I will say I did like Elder Jones' children's story, and particularly at the end, where he talked about freedom and the gospel. To me, the gospel is you have freedom from your past for your future. So now let me tell you what that means for black history. If you haven't read a book by a black author, free yourself from your past for your future and do it this month. I, I, I would teach classes and I'd ask students, uh, how many of you know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., raise your hand, and they are, all the hands go up. And then I say, how many of you have read one of his books, raise your hand, and all the hands go down. We need black history that's not told us by McDonald commercials in the month of February, but by a sustained reading of Frederick Douglass, Carter G. Woodson, the list goes on and on. And there's a new book that came out on Adventism and <laughs> Adventist faith responds to racism uh, by, by Nathan Brown and myself. We have a, a lot of scholars that have contributed, and we intentionally, by the way, uh, I, this is a shameless plug, but we intentionally drew from, from authors who are Adventists from every continent habitable. Uh, and from the islands of the sea, and it's a good conversation. But now to the text of scripture for the day. The first thing you must do to receive the proclamation in the text that was read is do some house cleaning. A number of reasons distract us from grasping the gospel lesson in the passage read this morning. It's hard to erase those images of grassy hills sprinkled with beautiful flowers, a playful puppy, European-looking middle-class families dressed in fine, clean, white Roman togas, smiling as they listen to the words of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount pictured in this way is like a 
mealtime at a family picnic. These distorted pictures from our primary Sabbath school class felt boards shape our minds to receive this reading. We have to do some house cleaning. We also train ourselves to read the Gospels like film footage taken immediately as Jesus preaches, heals, casts out demons, rides on a mule into Jerusalem. We forget that the Second Testament, the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, traveled in oral form taking over a decade before it was ever written down. Forgetting this hinders us from listening closer to the memoirs of Jesus as we read them in the gospel. The gospels take fragmented little vignettes, a story from here, a story from there, and puts it together into a broad narrative of the life of Jesus. The gospels portray Jesus' life and ministry in one giant hybrid narrative by joining together annunciation stories with nativity stories, calling stories with conflict stories, miracle stories with the passion and the resurrection story. Remember the Second Testament first existed in oral form. And by themselves, these oral portraits ring like impressionistic art, their vague patterns. So writers like Matthew sprinkle oratory throughout. He collects well-known sayings of Jesus and brings to life those vignettes by casting them and these sayings in an oratorical drama. Matthew, like an expert jeweler, places a menu of directly quoted sayings from Jesus into the setting of a speech. Clean out the clutter and make room for this host of aphorisms arranged by Matthew. And don't let your faith be shattered to discover that what we call the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible is actually a literary fiction about some historical facts. Sure, sure, we recognize the whole sermon as Christ's words for us today. But the risen Christ speaking to us and the historical Christ represented don't align perfectly. It's unlikely that this sermon was ever preached in this form. The sermon is clearly a compilation of the sayings of Jesus by the evangelist. Rather than something spoken by Jesus on a single occasion, it is a compendium or a handbook of Christian ethics. So whatever you do in this house cleaning, don't throw out the best hits record because that's what it is. What we have here are the greatest hits of Jesus' preaching career all bundled together on a mountain. And why? Why a mountain? You see, Matthew wants to guide us so that when we read the life of Jesus, we see it as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and dreams. Moses, the greatest of all prophets and the giver of the law, said these words in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. 
and here the evangelist Matthew pictures Jesus as the new Moses. On a mount, Moses descends with the words, thou shalt not. Jesus, the new Moses, proclaims from a mount the words, oh, you blessed ones. Our verses today nestled into the text of this sermon. Like someone coming in a sermon that's already begun, we pick it up. Jesus gives two aphorisms, one about salt, another about light. Then we read on to get clarity on Jesus' relationship with the law. Two motivations for placing these verses where they are in the sermon lies in what is said before them and what is said after them. Before them are a series of blessings. Blessed are you poor, pouting, passive, pure in heart. And after them are a series of antithesis. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Messiah Jesus challenges the interpretations of his day. Not so much the interpretations of the Torah, but the interpretations of the time. As I said in the first service, it's not so much interpreting the Bible, it's about interpreting life with the help of the Bible. Well, I think I know Jesus was a black man because he gives himself an amen in his sermon. <laughs> in verse 18, he says, for truly or verily, the word is amen. His amen reinforces not what he thinks you should think or do. He reinforces what he does not want you to think. So I have my own amens about what not to think when you read this passage. When you hear the words in this part of the sermon, there are lessons you should never take away. We should not take this lesson as Jesus preaching exclusivity, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These words come not to encourage elitism, selectivity, exclusivity, rareness, snobbery, snootiness, or stuffiness. To the contrary, when Jesus gives these words, it's the exemplar of what inclusivity looks like. His sermon came to those who were downtrodden, rejected, broken, left out, excluded. They were on the margins of Jewish society and Roman imperial rule. And what does he say to them? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He addressed them with blessings of the kingdom. Oh, you blessed poor. Oh, you blessed mourners. Oh, you blessed persecuted. Oh, you blessed hands that are dirty, but hearts that are pure. 
The kingdom belongs to you. Don't you dare hide out in darkness. Let your light shine. Also, when we hear the words in this part of the sermon, we should not take away a lesson on how Jesus fulfills the law by modeling how we should keep it. Now, this is the part of the sermon where if you can't say amen, say ouch. This text is not a biblical basis for what the world, uh, for what would Jesus do type of guilt trips. What would Jesus do? No, no. The question is, what would Jesus have you do? This is not social engineering to keep the law, to follow the norms, to be a good boy, to keep the Ten Commandments. That tactic could work if we didn't have the rest of the story to read. I thought Moses' law said any food that could be eaten shall be unclean if water from any such forbidden animal vessel comes upon it. Leviticus 11.34. Matthew records Jesus saying, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Chapter 15.11. Think not that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I thought Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Exodus 20, 12. Matthew records Jesus say, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Chapter 10, 35. Think not that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I thought Moses' law said, Aaron, you and your sons and your ancestral house with you shall bear responsibility for offenses connected with the sanctuary, while you and your sons alone shall bear responsibility for offenses connected with the priesthood. Numbers 18, 1. Matthew records, then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were sailing and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Chapter 21, 12. Think not that I have come to destroy the law the prophets. In the very verses that follow this morning's reading, Jesus poses a series of antithesis. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, don't take from this lesson that Jesus' relationship to the law and the prophets is no different in kind from our relationship to the law and the prophets, only different in degree. Don't take that lesson. He said, think not that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So we got to the message of the gospel and the message today. This morning's proclamation is this simple. God in Christ, Proclaim the blessings of a kingdom that embraces the poor, the mourners, the meek, the broken but pure-hearted ones. That God transforms our nature, sets our characters right, so that we produce good works that season the world and light its way through the darkness. It's that simple. You are salt. 
You are light. Now go act like it. It's that simple. You can write it in verse. You can put it to music. You can sprinkle it with candy, top it with cream. But it's simply that. God's imperial rule changes our character so that we bear good fruit in and for this world. Full stop. It's simple, but not simplistic. Simple, you say? I guess like the Constitution of the United States of America. It is simple on paper. So let's not take this simple message and turn it into something simplistic, like the encounter Dr. Thomas Long had on an airplane flight sitting next to an astronomer who was a Christian. When the astronomer discovers Dr. Long is a theologian, he says, I like to keep my theology simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Dr. Long replies back, I get it, fair. I like to keep my astronomy simple. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. If this Galilean man is truly the anointed one, as Matthew's gospel proclaims, and as we who have gathered believe, then the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in his arrival. He doesn't come, and only after he strictly follows the law and the prophets, then we certify him as Messiah. No, that's not the way it happens. Flip it around. Because he came because he arrived, all the hopes and all the promises made in the law and the prophets finally found their fulfillment. This is the gospel, my friends. It starts and it ends with Jesus. Now we see that unlike the interpreters of his day, Jesus read and practiced Torah from a perspective where the context of sin is no longer the most important factor. If I read it, I practice the law because sin is the most important factor, I'm going to turn on my behaviors. I'm going to obsess upon my practices. But the context that Jesus is dealing with is not sin as the most important. It's the coming kingdom of God that he inaugurated. And that shapes our direction. God's purposes have a unity. Jesus alone and not the Pharisees can interpret the Torah finally and authoritatively. He is what the law and the prophets point to. And this is more than a twinkle, twinkle, little star kind of faith. It requires that we toss out outdated interpretations of times gone by. The kingdom proclaimed in Matthew's gospel is like a salt miner, a salt mine owner who refuses a transactional wholesale distribution. Rather, he gives his salt freely to each and all who hear his proclamation and receive his blessing. When we read the words, you are the salt of the earth, 
the light of the world. Let your light shine. Unless you have a better reputation than the scroll keepers and the separated ones, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is really doing, he's inviting you and me to share in his fulfillment of God's reign. If we don't help, who will? Chaucer changed the metaphor but sharpened the message. If gold rusts, what should iron do? A Talmudic proverb mixes the metaphor and magnifies the message. The salt of money is its scarcity, but the salt of money is also charity. Jesus left a scarce band of a few followers tasked to spread charity. So don't despair because the group is small. A pinch of salt is effective out of all proportion to the amount that it is. He tells them, get about fulfilling the work. Can you take the saltiness out of salt? One commentator notes that pure sodium chloride does not deteriorate. So Jesus may have in mind not deterioration, but adulteration. And there's the warning for you and me. Look at the world around us today. You've seen the news. You are the salt of the earth. Please don't remind me. You are the salt of the earth. Do you know how much it cost me to get my kids through school? I can't pitch in on the homeless problem. You are the salt of the earth. I don't know how much, the, uh, much even about the troubles in the U.S. How can I weigh in on Israeli and Palestinian conflict? On Ukraine and Russia's war? You are the salt of the earth. What Jesus is saying. Be who you are. Value the dispossessed. Do justice, show mercy, make peace. The word for us today, Christ has no hermit strategy. Go out and touch the world. You don't have to be sensational. Salt is inconspicuous. Ours is a day-by-day -day witness. Take the risk of faith, the risk to believe that God in Christ has already named you one of the blessed. Put you in his salt shaker to season the world. Filled your lantern with enough oil to light up a room, if not a city. And if your portion is small, leave the salt mine, nevertheless, with the pinch that was given you so that you can season or preserve or heal, or whatever. And the world will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.